1: or just look us up on your podcast app. That's The Explorers Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another History of the Second World War interview. In this interview, I was joined by Dr. Chris Millington from the Manchester Metropolitan University and author of A History of Fascism in France from the First World War to the National Front. As you may of course imagine, this means that we spent most of our time discussing the fascist movement in France during the 1920s and 30s. We talked about what it was, how popular it was, and if it ever came close to attaining power. We also discussed at some length the fact that labeling the French radical right-wing political groups fascist is a somewhat controversial move. That is not a totally unknown phenomenon in other nations as well, both from the interwar periods and in the decades since. I thought I would use this opportunity to discuss fascism in two other nations before we jump into the interview. As with every other conversation revolving around trying to apply the label of fascist to any group, we have to contend with the problem of fascism's amorphous definition. Some of these groups make it very easy to know that they were in fact fascist, because they would label themselves as fascists, uh, like the British Union of Fascists. But in other cases, there is far more debate about how fascist, authoritarian, or just conservative many groups were around Europe and the world. I will focus on just two examples, fascism in Britain in the form of the previously mentioned British Union of Fascists, and fascism in Austria, which is a topic that is, at times, as hotly debated as in France. For all of these cases, one thing that should be remembered is that fascism during the 1920s and 30s was not viewed as it would be after the war began in 1939. After the start of the war, fascism in all of its forms would be seen as the great enemy by many Western nations. But up to the mid-1930s, it was seen as just another political movement. It was generally seen as being on the far right of the political spectrum and perhaps a bit too violent in both its rhetoric and actions, but it was often still just another political movement within the wider collection of groups. This led the political leaders of places like Britain and France to believe that the shift of fascism in, for example, Italy under Mussolini, was actually an improvement, and there were many people who believed that Hitler coming to power in 1933 was a similarly positive development. At the very least, they believed that it was far preferable to communism. The placement of fascism among the accepted political ideologies is critical to understanding why there were well-developed and well-supported fascist movements in places like Britain, Austria, and France. The British Union of Fascists, or BUF, was founded in 1932 by Oswald Mosley. In 1934, it would have 50,000 members, thanks at least partially to the positive support given to the group by the Daily Mail and its owner, Lord Rothermere. The politics of the BUF was a mix of British nationalism with a strong foundation in intense anti-Semitism. This would be made official party policy in 1934, with this anti-Semitic part of the party platform having not been included publicly before that out of concerns that it would prevent some from supporting the group. Daniel Till's in Political Violence and Democracy in Western Europe, 1918-1940, to would have this to say about Mosley and his anti-Semitism. Quote, Mosley, in order to portray his anti-Semitism as a necessary and rational policy, required evidence of Jewish opposition to his party. To encourage this, he employed anti-Jewish language in brief spurts, with the aim of inciting a response from Jews before subsequently suppressing such rhetoric to allow his renunciations of anti-Semitism to remain plausible. Unlike the most influential French fascist groups, The BUF was involved in electoral politics and actively sought to increase their power by winning elections. As with any other fascist groups, uh, violence was an important piece of the party's actions, although they would claim that they only engaged in it reluctantly. While it would make this claim, the presence of violence within its rhetoric and at party events increased over time. The cycle seen in other nations would repeat in Britain, with anti-fascist protests clashing with fascist groups during party rallies and meetings, which were protected by militant party members. There were dedicated groups of members that were trained to subdue and remove protesters from these events. Also mirroring other nations, the BUF made a concerted effort to avoid fighting with the police, which would have forfeited the overall positive view that the BUF enjoyed among those policemen. This support would eventually result in the Battle of Cable Street, a clash between anti-fascist demonstrators, including prominent British communist leaders, and the police who were attempting to protect a fascist march through the east end of London in 1936. The fighting that would very rapidly ensue would result in the injury of almost 200 people. The BUF demonstrators would eventually retreat from the area, and immediately after the event, the group would actually see a boost in public support. But in the long run, the entire ordeal would be a disaster. The violence of the event uh, resulted in the creation of the Public Order Act of 1936, which put restrictions on the actions of groups that were deemed to be harmful to public order. The three major components of the act were the banning of uniforms for political organizations, which directly attacked the black shirt uniforms that had been a hallmark of the BUF. The second part of the act mandated that public processions and demonstrations had to be cleared with local law enforcement the final major concern of the Act would be encapsulated in Section 5, with some very broad language. Quote, any person who in any public place or at any public meeting uses threatening, abusive, or insulting words or behaviors with the intent to provoke a breach of the peace, or whereby a breach of the peace is likely to be occasioned, shall be guilty of an offense. End quote. The BUF would continue to exist under the new restrictions, and there would be a very brief positive side effect of the new restrictions, with the reduction in overall violence surrounding the group making it more palatable to more people. However, it was never able to regain its former numbers, and it would begin a slow and steady slide into irrelevance, which would be finalized by the start of the war. When the war started, the party continued to push for Britain to exit the war, but it also supported their members joining the military to defend the nation. Then, in June 1940, the party would be outlawed entirely, with the offices and newspapers ran by the party being shut down and almost 750 members arrested. Another nation that often gets mentioned in the conversations around fascism in Europe is Austria. The divisive point around Austrian politics is whether or not the government under Dolphus and Schuschnigg should be considered fascist or not. As always, it comes back to the flimsy definition of fascism. In the mid-1930s, there were certainly many changes among the right wing of Austrian politics. The Dolphus regime would be without a doubt authoritarian, taking over complete control of the government and proroguing parliament by emergency decree in March 1933. The question becomes whether or not they were just authoritarian or if they should be classified as fascist. Those who support the idea that Dolphus and his government were not fascist claim that it was rooted in a traditional conservative viewpoint, It was supported by the church, and it only took on some fascist tendencies to combat the actual Austrian fascists. Some political theorists and historians refer to this phenomenon as preventive fascism, or the idea that in the face of fascism, many regimes, in an effort to stay in power, were forced to take on some facets of fascism itself, especially around violence and its place within the overall political landscape. Dolphus would also claim that all of these efforts were essential to prevent Austria from falling into the hands of the Social Democrats and the Communists. To do both of these things, Dolphus would outlaw many political groups and would create a kind of super party known as the Fatherland Front, and he would work closely with the Heimwehr, a paramilitary group. In the end, all of these activities firmly placed Dolphus and Schuschnigg and the regime they created into fascism, in a structure very similar to what had been seen in Italy. We covered events in Austria in greater detail back in the Anschluss episodes, but I wanted to provide a reminder here. For now, let's start this interview with Dr. Chris Millington.
0: Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.
2: Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another History of the Second World War interview. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Chris Millington of Manchester Metropolitan University and the author of A History of Fascism in France from the First World War to the National Front, which was just published in in 2020. Uh, Dr. Millington, how's it going?
3: Uh, It's going very well, yes, thank you, as well as can be expected. (laughs) That's
1: that's generally how it goes. So we're here today to talk about uh, the history of fascism in France, the subject of your book, and I think that sort of fascism in France is maybe not a well-known topic uh, among even people who who know quite a bit about this time period. And so, could you briefly just sort of talk about the origins of fascism in France uh, during the the nineteen twenties and thirties? Yes.
3: Well, something that might surprise you uh, and your listeners as well is that there is quite a strong argument that fascism itself, on a more general level, came from France. Um, and this was an argument that's actually put forward in the early 1980s uh, by uh, an Israeli historian uh, Zev Sternhell, and what he argued was that if you look at France at the end of the 19th century, you can see all the ideas that later made up fascism coming together in a, a new form of right-wing politics, so one that opposes the left. Um but one that also opposes conservatism as well. So and he calls this the radical right. And he argues that um it's in France that we first see what he calls this proto-fascism. Um uh, so so the, the his idea was that fascism was French uh to begin with. Um now that obviously uh was very controversial. Uh, a controversial argument to make at the time, and it drew a furious reaction uh, from French historians. Um, And the reason I'm giving you this context is because the whole subject of fascism in the 20s and 30s in France is uh, one of the most bitter and most fierce debates in uh, modern French historiography. Um, And it's precisely on whether there was actually any fascism in France. Um at this time um now there were several movements, so there's an array of movements in the country that we could describe as fascist um in the nineteen twenties are there's an emergence of what we might recognise as kind of like fascist style paramilitary leagues, so what we what to our eyes look typically fascist, so they wear uniforms, they give salutes um they're organized along paramilitary lines uh they fight communists in the street etc um they want to get rid of the third republic the democratic regime um and the two most important ones of these uh groups there's there's one called the fezo uh which uh declares itself to be fascist in the Italian style. And there is one called uh, the Jeunesse Patriote, um, which uh, is is also uh, intending to get rid of the Republic. Um, but it doesn't necessarily say that it, it is fascist. Um, one of the most interesting things about that league is that it's founded by a man called Pierre Tétanger, who um, is the, uh, uh, the man behind Tétanger Champagne, which you can still buy today. I think there's a a winery in California for <laughs> a um, So they're the main movements of the 1920s. Um, the following decade is when you see a huge growth of these extreme right-wing leagues. So they're, they're called leagues because they don't take part in democratic elections or politics. They don't put candidates up. Um, and the most important of these leagues in the 1930s is called the Quadrefeu. Um, which is led by a man called uh, Lieutenant Colonel uh, François de la Roque. Um, and uh, de la Roque also wants to get rid of the Republic and replace it with an authoritarian regime. Now, the reason his group is so significant is because by 1939, it has about 1 million members. Um, that makes it larger than the Nazi party was before Hitler came to power. Um, And it also makes it the largest political movement in French history. Um, Now, the problem is, and we can discuss this further, is that was it fascist or not? Um, And uh, that it's at the centre of the debate about the existence of French fascism. Was the largest political movement in French history actually a fascist movement? That, I guess that
1: uh, probably ties into the kind of fluid nature of fascism and why it's so difficult to answer. You know what
3: is fascism, uh, as well. Yes, that's a, it's a huge stumbling block uh, block for um, historians the definition of fascism, and it. I think quite something that illustrates this this uh, difficulty in defining fascism quite well is that there are two historians who studied the, the quadrofere, so this huge movement. Um, they both argue that fascism is co- conservative, um, or, or sorry, they both argue that the quadrofere is conservative. Um, but because they define fascism differently, one of them argues that fascism is just an extreme form of conservatism. So the Quadrafer is fascist. The other argues that no fascism has got nothing to do with conservatism and the Quadrafer is conservative. Therefore, it's not fascist. So so it, the, this, as I say, it's a huge stumbling block, the definition of fascism, how to define it. And actually uh, what I do in my book on the subject is that I avoid a definition of fascism because it has caused such problems in this field. And what I uh, tend to do in the book is, well, I look at, well, what did these movements at the time think fascism was? Uh, did they understand it um, in the same way that we do? Because as a historian, should I be going back into the past and saying, "Well, you're a fascist, you're not a fascist"? Where, where does that really get us? So, so when you say that, so. You know, how did the, this
1: French fascist movement view these other fascist movements that were kind of building up around Europe? You mentioned the, the Italian one earlier.
3: Yes, well, the, uh, one of the things that unites uh, a lot of these extreme right wing movements in France is that they all say that they are not fascist. And um, partly this is because uh, they want to avoid repression from the government. Um, and uh, they want to combat attacks from the anti-fascist left by saying that we, we we it is not our intention to get rid of the republic um we, we are more harmless th- than you're than you're painting us and um, but i think one of the things that is very difficult for us to understand is that in the 1920s and 30s people didn't really know what fascism was it was a brand new political movement and um, it seemed to be a a brand new form of politics so this violent paramilitarism and it was it was a real struggle for the French to understand well what is fascism Um, and in the 1920s you see ideas of what fascism is coming into the French press so uh, they the journalists uh, who are based in Rome report back and they say well fascism it's just a movement of war veterans it's just conservative um it has nothing to do with uh extremism um it's it's a, a legitimate reaction to communism um and so th- there is this effort to understand well what is it and one of the key things that the french movements argue is that fascism is italian and it is suited to the italian mentality and therefore we are french we can't be fascist um it's not suitable for france um, it won't work here. Um, and we are, and this is important to remember about all fascists, we are ultra-nationalists. We are not going to say, well, we're just copying f- the foreigners. Um, so we are French. We are not fascist. Um, and what is fascism anyway? So you mentioned that these groups sort of saw themselves as
1: distinctly French. So can you talk a little bit about sort of their, their beliefs and their platforms um, that they were sort of uh, talking about at this point?
3: Yes, so uh, all of them want to uh, replace the Third Republic with some form of authoritarian regime. Now, uh, given what I've said, um, whether they say it's fascist or not uh, depends on the group. So the the Fezo of the 1920s argues that it wants to replace the Republic with with what it calls a combatant state um, which sounds very fascist, uh, to, compared with Italy and, and Germany. Um, and they actually do claim that they are, they are fascist. Um, but its leader, uh, a man called Georges Valois, he thinks that fascism uh, is a revolutionary doctrine, so he's quite interested in the left-wing side of fascism. Um, the other groups, like the Jeunesse Patriote, uh wants to also to get rid of the Republic, but it says it wants a more authoritarian regime um without it being fully fascist and I think the the qua of the nineteen thirties is probably the most interesting because uh its leader lieutenant colonel uh, de, de la Roque, um he he actually says that he is loyal to the third Republic, but he frames it in a very ambiguous way, so he says i 'm loyal to the constitution as it stands today um leaving room for in my opinion that his entry into uh, government to then rewrite the constitution um now he also says that he wants this authoritarian republic with uh, led by a group of um hand picked like notables and experts and uh, people who are uh, seen as 100% french and uh, some historians argue, well, that that just anticipates the Fifth Republic in France, so the modern regime in in France today, which is a presidential regime in which the president has a lot of power to appoint the government. Um, however, my from my point of view, Laroque also says, oh, and yes, we will crush the communists. Uh, we will end parliamentary uh, or, or electoral competition, and so that's less well, that's nothing like today. Um, so so Laroque um, is very ambiguous uh, in, in his platform. Um, and uh, he, he frames it as, well, I am a Republican. But again, in, in the way that we have to define fascism, people had different understandings about what the Republic meant as well. And it didn't necessarily mean the Third Republic, which they all rejected as this rotten, uh, decadent regime, much like the parties in Weimar Germany, the extremist parties reject the Weimar Republic.
1: Interesting, and so and so beyond just their views on the Third Republic, uh, one of the features of other fascist movements, um, especially you know the two most notable ones, Italy and Germany, is is a militarism that is based on the idea that a strong military will let them sort of reassert themselves in the global political scheme. Um, is that something that the French the French were in a very different position, you know, because a lot Italian and, and Germany, those views were rooted in the aftermath of the First World War, but France was in a very different position. Like, was there something similar happening in these French parties?
3: Uh, yeah, that's, that's a really good point. So France is a, probably the biggest difference between France and the other countries that fall to fascism, is that France is uh satisfied i suppose we could say in 1918 uh with the victory uh france is a victorious nation and um as we know this uh, this context in germany of the stab in the back myth and in italy of this mutilated victory uh provides the the a lot of the context and the groundwork or lays the ground for for fascism and um, now that is of course um different in france but i i don't think we can say that that immunizes the french uh, from fascism because you still have the development of this extreme right wing uh move these extreme right wing movements and what we see in france is that dissatisfaction with the the victory and or the way the the governments um are unfolding in the 20s uh it mirrors the way the extreme right feels in Italy and Germany so there's a lot of dissatisfaction particularly with the left-wing governments in the 20s about uh, selling the victory off or, or selling out France uh, particularly when the, the French make uh, approaches to or friendly approaches to Germany again in the mid-1920s and we also have a huge veterans movement in France so three million French men belong to a veterans association there are lots of veterans associations and the one thing that unites these veterans associations is that they are all anti-parliamentarian because they think that the veteran is better suited to running the country than democratically elected politicians who they argue represent narrow interest groups and are only concerned about their own career. So although we have this very different outcome for the First World War in France, we still have the idea that the war is somehow, uh, or there is some something unsatisfactory about the victory and we still have a large proportion of veterans who uh, who spread these very authoritarian ideas throughout society by saying that the the republic is no good no good anymore we need uh, a new government um, to to put things right in the name of France. And You know, a lot of these
1: movements were were rooted in in an anti-leftism, anti-communism, anti-socialism, and and, and things of those nature. In France, those sort of leftist movements were quite popular, quite powerful. And did that sort of... So I guess the question I'm getting at here is, you know, in these other countries, you have these fascist movements that, that eventually rise to power. But in France, it, that never happens, even though the leftists in France are much more powerful. Now, is is it because there's so much more support for the left in France? Or was there some other reason that that maybe things did not go as far in France towards
3: the, the fascist direction, at least before the start of the war? Um, yeah, I think there's two reasons why we could say although I don't like to say fascism failed in France because the, there are hundreds of thousands of French who join these movements, but it did fail to come to power. Um, we, With regard to the left in France, um, I don't know if it's more popular than in, say, Germany or, or Italy, but the French left learns the lessons of what happens in Germany and Italy. So uh, by 1934, the french left the communist and the the socialist parties they see what mussolini has done 10 years ago in in italy and they see what hitler has just done in germany um and they uh it begins as a grassroots movement where individuals within the parties start working together in uh what they call anti-fascist committees um and then in mid 1934, Stalin in Moscow orders the Communist Party to start forming a Popular Front with the Socialist Party against fascism, and and so this the left unites in France in a way that it doesn't unite in the other countries, um, and uh, this Popular Front coalition, it, it it is it's an electoral coalition, but it also fights in the streets with fascists. It organises large. Uh, counter demonstrations to fascist parades and meetings and in june nineteen thirty six the popular front wins the general election and one of the first things it does is it bans the paramilitary league so it outlaws the qua um now the quadafer is outlawed it just it but it just transforms itself into a political party um and so the the popular front doesn't really solve the problem um it the problem just changes. Um, But I think the the other reason that perhaps explains the failure of fascists in France to come to power is that they, in the way that Mussolini and Hitler combined street violence with electoral participation, the French leagues never did that. So when uh, the French leagues are fighting in the street, they've got no one in parliament to put pressure on the establishment to invite these leaders into power, which is... Essentially, what happens in Italy and Germany? So they, they make the mistake that there's no one on the inside um, to 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 put forward their claim to power.
1: There's nobody there for the other conservative parties to sort of form a coalition with, which is what happens in those other nations.
3: Yes, yes, that's right. So um, the the leagues do work with conservative parties. They are, the, there is a blaring of boundaries between the conservative right and the extreme right. Um, and uh, the, the conservative right quite likes the way these paramilitaries beat up communists and socialists um, but in parliament the conservative right like all political parties they want power for themselves um, so uh, there is no one there is no large kind of cohort, cohort of fascist members of parliament or deputies like in in nazi germany or in germany before the nazis take power there's hundreds of Nazi MPs. There's nothing like that uh, in, in, in France, just conservative MPs who think, yes, we quite like the leagues, but you you stay get, stay in your box, stay in the street. So, so was the, the decision to kind of stay out of politics, uh, was
1: that uh, so, something from the early days of sort of the French radical right or fascism? Like, was that a topic that was revisited? Was that divisive, uh,
3: that kind of decision? Um, the, the decision to stay out of politics comes from the fact that these leagues do not want to be, uh, compromised by, by, by being seen to work with the system. They, they denounce parliaments, they denounce the Republic. And so it's difficult to denounce the regime when you're actually sending members of parliament, uh, to, to work within it. Um, and, uh, the Quadafer in particular says that it is apolitical. It says it's not a political movement. It's a French movement, just working for the national interest. Um, so to, to run mem- members of the Quadrefer, uh for parliamentary seats. Uh Roche even says that parliamentary politics makes him want to vomit. Uh, he rejects it so much. Um, however, once the Quadrafer is outlawed and he transforms it into a political party, they do start running members for election. um, But by the time 1940 comes around and parliament is suspended, they've only got a handful of, of deputies in in the chamber of deputies and it's, it's really, it's too late. So you mentioned when, when the popular front
1: comes to power in 1936, I believe, you know, my understanding is that there was uh, quite a bit of violence when that happened. These, these groups, you know, uh, tried to stage some violent protests. Uh, how large were those protests? You know, how,
3: how did they go? I guess maybe the simplest way to put it. Uh, yeah. Well, violence was a feature of French politics throughout the the interwar period. Um, now this is also a subject of debate amongst historians because we can't say that as many people died in France in political clashes as in Germany, for example. So, um, a hundred or so people were killed in France in political fighting, whereas in Germany, it's, it's it goes into the, the many hundreds. Um, and so the argument can be made, well, the French fascists weren't serious about violence. But if we compare the French number with Britain, um, in, in which case, as far as I know, no one died in political violence in the interwar years. France seems much more violent. So there's this undercurrent of violence running throughout the 20s and 30s, um, it uh peaks in the mid 1930s um and uh, what usually happens is that the right wing leagues uh, stage political meetings within left wing areas, a deliberate attempt to provoke the left. Um, and the the left takes the bait and responds with large counter demonstrations. Um, now both sides argue that they are not actually attacking. The other side they are merely acting in self defense which was a common nazi and and fascist way of framing their own violence um and vi- and people are usually killed um when uh well actually we should be honest people are usually killed by the police um because uh, the the police do quite a good job of keeping these activists apart during these demonstrations and meetings but they do that themselves with violence um, and so most people in France die at the hands of police officers. Um, but but there is this current of violence that characterizes French politics at this time. So you bring up the police here. And I know, you know,
1: in, in some other areas that the police were, if not active, you know, fascist supporters were certainly strongly anti left. Is that a, another similarity that France has with those other nations?
3: Um yes in terms of the police leaders yes um i've have done some work on police violence and what what i found in my research was that the police leaders were certainly anti-communist and they would be more heavy-handed in sending large numbers of police to and to communist demonstrations however um what we what I found was that firstly, uh, the police officers actually on the ground they were no less violent to the extreme right wingers than than extreme left wingers, and uh, secondly, the the left provoked the police more. So the left staged these large demonstrations, which the extreme right wing leagues they staged parades, but they were quite ordered and disciplined. These large demonstrations were quite rowdy crowds, and often ended it, it, often the confrontations ended with the with these crowds throwing things at the police throwing punches, bottle stones. And so i I found less evidence that officers on the ground were anti leftist, just that the police had more opportunity to fight with the left and that led to more violence.
1: So perhaps the left is also a, a bit anti-police in this case. Uh,
3: uh, Yes, uh, certainly, uh, particularly the communist party and they, the communist party in the late twenties and early thirties wants to invite police repression because it shows the, uh, the, the tyranny of the capitalist state.
1: So you mentioned earlier that, that these groups were uh, maybe one of these groups was the largest political party in France. Um, And so was there ever a risk, or was there ever a point of danger? Were they ever close to actually taking control? I guess they couldn't do so from like the normal political way
3: that that others in the, in the republic uh, took control. Uh, yes, well, there is. There's a, a night in uh, February 1934, or the the sixth of February 1934, um, which is regarded as it's one of the most important dates in French interwar politics because there was a riot in Paris on that night um, and it was a riot involving these extreme right-wing groups. Um, They had gathered to protest against the left-wing government um, and it resulted in the group's fighting with police in the centre of Paris, just over the river from uh, the French Parliament building and trying to get into the Parliament building to then do who knows what, lynch members of Parliament or install their own their, their own fascist regime. Um, this is seen as the point at which France was closest to falling to a fascist uh, government. Um, about a dozen people were shot dead by police, um, and the the riot uh, is a failure. Um now it's a failure in the sense that fascists are not brought to power. But in fact, the left wing government resigns uh, within days of the riot and it is replaced by what was called this government of national union, which was actually a right wing government. So um, this is seen as very significant because extreme right wing violence had removed the left wing government and put into power. A conservative nationalist government, um, and the the fascists thought that this government was going to implement the reforms that, that it was protesting about. So, um, the this is the most significant moment for fascism in France. Um, however, you might not be surprised to know that historians disagree about what the actual protesters wanted uh, on the night. Did they just want to get rid of the government, or did they want to get rid of the democratic? Uh, republic. And it depends on which side of the debate you fall, uh, which which interpretation you read into the 6th of February, 1934.
1: Yeah, that's what I was going to ask is, you know, what were the intentions of this? Was it just a a protest that kind of got out of control? Or was it a, a targeted movement to, you know, either topple the government that was in place at the time or the sort of governmental system?
3: Yeah, well, the, the 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 leagues that take part do make statements about their intentions before they gather in Paris. But they use, once again, very ambiguous language. So they say, we're going to clean out Parliament. Uh, we're going to clean out the Republic. We're going to install men who uh, better embody the national interest. Um, now, after the, the riot... There is a government investigation um, which these uh, French groups, they, they want to avoid prosecution. So they argue, well, we never intended anything by it. It was just uh, just meant to uh, remove the prime minister who we didn't like. Um, we we support the republic. And um, so uh, I, I think perhaps one of the the problems for historians of fascism in France is the very ambiguity. Uh, that these groups or with, with which these groups express their own politics.
1: And I guess in situations like that, where um, maybe they failed, maybe they succeeded, I assume their messaging would fit whatever happened. So it looked like they achieved their objectives, uh, you know, whatever ended up happening.
3: Yes. um, Yes, that's right. And um colonel de la rock himself um does not participate in the riot the quadrafer does not participate and so after the riot he is able to say well we were not part of this we are a disciplined group um we we could have taken part and and he says i could have swept away the republic if i'd wanted to but i didn't want to um and uh but but the significant thing about that is is that it's after this riot that the quadrafer grows and grows and grows so conservatives are quite impressed with this um with his non-participation on february 1934 whereas the extremists in his movement are impressed by the fact that he says that he had the republic at at his mercy um so uh he's a very shrewd politician in that sense
1: I guess being able to say that all I got to do is chat with my buddies and any leftist government is going down is uh, pretty pretty powerful advertising uh,
3: for your group. Yes, especially when you combine it with a paramilitary organization. So
1: looking looking past you know the, the Popular Front coming to power, as we move into the last years of peace and we move into the the start of the war what is kind of the french rights reaction to to the
3: to the start of the war i guess um well the, as i said previously these the french fascists are ultra nationalists so um i, I think it, given that we know that france was defeated uh, in 1940 we might be tempted to think oh well the these people acted as maybe a fifth column or uh, agent's working to undermine France from within. However, that was not the case. So one of the uh, the leaders of a, a fascist party, uh, the, the Parti Populaire Francais, uh, his name was Jacques Doriot. He actually fought very bravely in the Battle of France, even though he was very sympathetic to Nazism, um, because at the end of the day, it's about defending his, his homeland. Um, Certainly after the defeat, the French left argued that the the campaign had been undone by these people acting from within. Um, but the uh the French extreme right, although they maybe flirt with the Nazis um and uh look admiringly at what Hitler has done to the communists in in germany they by no means want to be governed by germany germany is the old enemy and so by 1938 1939 they've they we can say they've woken up to the threat of nazism like the rest of france um and uh but if anything they blame the republic for being weak uh in the face of hitler so it's they oppose hitler but it's another stick with which to beat the democratic regime Interesting, interesting. Um,
1: so you mentioned we kind of started this off with with a conversation about how whether or not people actually like putting the the term fascism on these groups and sort of their place in in French history. So a, as we look at how how these groups have been portrayed, you know, do do you see sort of the label being placed upon them as fascists, as something else sort of changing over the years, you know, in the post-war years, I'm sure there was something of a visceral sort of visceral reaction against fascism and not wanting that to be a part of French history, maybe. Um, But, but is that changing, you know, recently as, as, as we get
3: further away? Um, Yes, there, there, there's this desire to move Uh, away from or to move these groups away from the fascist label in the immediate post-war years because the french don't want to be associated with hitler uh, and nazism and that's why when in the early 1980s the argument is made well maybe fascism came from france there is outrage because the french think that they are being blamed for hitler and the holocaust and and all the things that went with it um, the, the The debate amongst historians about which groups were fascist and which were not fascist is still raging. Um, and uh, it's resulted in kind of as much as historians can insult each other uh, in in writing there has been have been insults flying but both ways. Um, in, in my experience that that manifests as mentioning
1: work in introductions and then talking about all the things wrong with it. Uh, before
3: they make their own arguments later on. Yes, it's. I think it's much worse than that. Actually, we. Um, so uh, because I am, uh, I'm outside of French academia. Um, I am uh, regarded by some French historians as an Anglo-Saxon historian, and uh, the they make the argument that Anglo-Saxon historians they're not actually proper historians. They don't use archives. Uh, they the archives that they do use they deform the sources they lie they leave things out etc so it's much kind of more explicit (laughs) okay yeah they're they're going uh, for it yes yeah um but yeah well they Mm -hmm. must assume the stakes are so high uh that 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 excuses this behavior Um. I, i think there is a third way though which i try to do in my book which is not to define fascism Um, And just look at the movements themselves, because this this obsession about which is fascist, which is not fascist. It has hindered research into lots of interesting areas, such as the participation of women in these movements or the attitudes of these movements to the French Empire. Because for for 20 years, all anyone cared about was, well, was Colonel de la Roque a fascist or not? Um, So there is a third way beginning to develop. Uh, amongst a, a newer generation of historians but there is still uh, a lot of animosity on both sides uh centering on this traditional uh, and well-entrenched debate about what is fascism and and who was a fascist <laughs>